uh, a really great honor to be here in New Bern and be at Village Chapel. Thank you for your, uh, your support and your prayers of RUF all these years, especially at UNC. Um, it's a pleasure to serve the state of North Carolina. I don't really, Katie and I don't have any like real connections to North Carolina through family or personal history, uh, but we've moved here and we felt so loved by this whole state and by churches like this and all oh, such kind, sweet people to have me this morning. If you could, turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 1. I'm going to be looking at Jesus' baptism. It's Mark uh, 9 uh, through 15. Thank you. All right. Um, so this semester in, at REF, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the shorter accounts of Jesus' life. It's uh, one of the earliest books in the New Testament, written probably about 25, 30 years after his public ministry. Uh, a lot of uh, work has been done on this, and according to the early church and a lot of the work that's done in this, it's, uh, it's probably based on Peter's own eyewitness account to, uh, to Mark about what really happened. So it's a quick kind of gunslinger, just the facts, ma'am, sort of account of the Mark's gospel. And if you've never read it before, it's an awesome book to read. You could read it in an afternoon, probably at three hours. It's a wonderful account of Jesus' life. It's a lot of the high water marks. Um, and one of the reasons we go at RUF through books of the Bible is to kind of keep me off of uh, high horses, or to kind of keep me off of hobby horses and things like that, but so that I would actually be preaching through a book and uh, preaching the full counsel of God's Word the best that I can. I only get 16 sermons a semester, so I can't preach every verse of Mark's Gospel. But we do get to get the good stuff. So this is Jesus' baptism here. So if you would, turn with me to Mark 1, 9-15. through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, before we dive into this, let's uh, ask ourselves something. Go to that place where you rarely let yourself go. Maybe for some of you, you've actually been there quite a bit. But ask yourself, what would kind of be the last straw for me? What would it take for me to punt this kind of whole Christianity thing? And we're praying, and we're singing songs, and we're reading the Bible, just kind of wash my hands, and I'm through. You know, maybe some of y'all have been there for a while, maybe you haven't. But I think for me, one of the hardest things in life is to wait and to wait on God. And as we start the book of Mark, that's where the people that have come to John the Baptist out in the wilderness have been. They've been waiting on God, struggling. Lord, where are you? Maybe some of us here today are at the same place. Of God, when will I be sure you're there? When will I stop being so lonely all the time? God, I try so hard to fit in. When will I feel like I belong? Mark's gospel opens us up in that same place for these people here. 
You know, John the Baptist has gone out into the, in the wilderness. And if you don't know anything about him, imagine this caveman that's come out into the wilderness. He's dressed in skins. He's eating locusts. And wild honey, you know that if you're going to eat locusts, you're going to have to cut that with some honey. You need something sweet to balance that locust taste out of your mouth. He's come out there into the wilderness, and he's preaching a gospel of repentance. That people should come out there and be baptized for their sins. And you know, when you think of the wilderness here, don't think of like the North Carolina wilderness. Where like maybe we'll go on a day hike or go out into the mountains and we'll see some like forest and maybe there's a waterfall. Like, when you think of the wilderness here, and you think of John the Baptist's work, think of, like, the badlands of Utah. Like, crazy hot, crazy dry, nobody's going out there because it's comfortable. People are going out there because they need to repent, because they need to believe, because they've been waiting on God. And John is at the Jordan River because they've been waiting for, for God to fulfill these promises. They've been waiting on Him for all these years. And they're at the Jordan River because that's where God has fulfilled His promises to Israel in the past. That's where they came in to the promised land. Where God had finally said, you know, I promised your forefathers you will get this land. And they walked over the Jordan and they were there. So these people are begging God, saying, God, fulfill your promises to us. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up as the fulfillment of those promises. So as we go through this text, we're going to ask ourselves two questions. What is Jesus doing when he's baptized? And what does he want us to do? How should I respond to this? So what is Jesus and how should I respond? So that's what we're going to look at today. You know, I'm holding this shirt up right here. And I, if you're an NC State fan, I apologize. <laughs> but this shirt's important to me because when we were, when Katie and I came to Chapel Hill to interview for our job at UNC... We went down on Franklin Street, and there's all these kind of t-shirt marketers and vendors. And we bought this shirt with the expectation that I would have a signing day. I don't know if you ever watch ESPN, uh, but when the, the college prospects come, there's a signing day when they finally put on the hat, they put on the shirt. I was, I was 5'11", 150 pounds. I never got a signing day, so this is my opportunity to, to be at a college campus and get a signing day. So we bought this shirt. We paid about $30 for this $2 cotton shirt. 30 bucks for that shirt. That's, that's exactly what happens in Carolina. Thank you, Norm. <laughs> Why did I pay $30 for this shirt? Why did I care so much about putting on a Carolina shirt? I think it's because that when I put on that shirt, when I finally had my signing day and I got the call and I'd gotten the job, that I wasn't just putting on a $30 t-shirt. That I was putting on 200 years of school history. I was putting on national championships. I was putting on Michael Jordan. I was putting on a little bit of NCAA violations. But I was putting on a lot of great things, too. When Jesus is baptized here, what is he doing? Why is he getting baptized? He's not getting baptized because he's dirty and he needs to repent. He's already clean. He's baptized because he wants to enter into the story of God's people, into the good and the bad. In the same way that when I put on that, that North Carolina shirt, I'm putting on national championships. I'm putting on 200 years of history. I'm putting on NCAA violations. When Jesus is baptized, he enters into his people's story and totally identifies with them. He's not someone who sins. And yet he wants to wear that story that they've entered into. 
Israel, look at what happens here when he gets, after he gets baptized. That Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years before they crossed over the Jordan. Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel got tempted in the wilderness, didn't they? Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord cared for Israel. Angels wait on Jesus. And what's interesting about this is that if you want a, if you want a time when you're really going to identify with Israel... You don't pick the wilderness wandering years. You want to pick the highlights, right? You want to pick Solomon's temple, maybe some of David's glory years. But when you put on Israel's wilderness years, you're putting on a time when they made a golden calf and worshipped another god. You're picking a time when they were so bad that God said, you know, this is normally a three-week trip. We're going to extend this 40 years because you all cannot enter this holy land. What's interesting about that is that Jesus... He's put on their story when he's baptized into that, those wilderness years. And Mark is making that point here. But what's amazing here is that instead of falling on his face like Israel does, Jesus is able to stand against Satan's temptation. And, but in his standing, he hasn't forgotten about their failures. He hasn't forgotten his pe- about his people's shame. In fact, he's very intentionally put that on himself. He's wearing their story. He's identifying himself not only with the sinners, but with their sins. Why is that? Because when God fulfills His promises to His people, that's how He fulfills it to us. What does does that look like for us in this room? What do we need to hear about our lives? You know, a former campus minister told me a while back that when he was doing college ministry, there was a guy in his ministry who really, he really had it all. Young guy, 20-something years old, super bright dude, super bright young man from a great family. He'd always excelled in school. He was 22, but he had the personality of like a 50-year-old senator. He could talk to a brick wall. He could charm anybody. Very articulate. Had a lot of things going on for him. He was the life of the party. But he was also a really, really good-looking guy, too. He was one of those people that, like, guys would approach him and be like, look, can I borrow your jawline for this Friday night? I've got a date. I need it to go well. He was one of those guys that when when he walked in the room and maybe you were a man and you've been talking to some of the cute co-eds in there, uh, you, you walked, he walked in and immediately all the air would kind of go out of the guys because the girls would just turn towards this man. And he'd sunk your battleship even before it begun. I mean, you couldn't do anything about that. And so he was this phenomenal guy. But my friend tells me that this young man was being mentored by an older man in his church. And one day this older man looks at him and he says, you know what? You've got a lot of things going for you. You've got a great personality. You're really good looking. You're hardworking. You're bright. But you know what your problem is? Is that you've got a really great personality. You're good looking. You're hardworking. And you're bright. Is that the things that that young man did so well, the things that were so wonderful about him, could easily get in the way of what he needed from God, of what we need from Jesus. You know what would be a tragedy for us? I think what would be a tragedy for us here is that if we were to go out and we would not at all think about the fact that God would be willing to wear the good parts of our story as well as the bad parts of our story. You know what would be a tragedy for our lives is if we were to come off this weekend and maybe we had a great weekend with friends and family and after church we went out to eat with people and we saw our really, really good friends here. But then tomorrow we went to work 
where we went home, we thought to ourselves, you know what? I'm doing pretty good for myself. I'm a smart person. I work pretty hard. It's pretty hard for me to think that with all the time and the effort and the natural ability that I put into my life or that I put into work and into being friendly or sociable, that this isn't all because of me. I think that would be a tragedy. And I think what would be tragic is if we spent our whole life trying to convince other people of how smart we were, how talented we were, how articulate we were. And those things are great. They aren't bad in themselves. But where those things become dangerous is when you start to say to yourself things like, I'm not sure that I don't need Him to make me whole. I'm sure that there is some other way for me to become clean. To make me acceptable both inside and out. I think that's dangerous for us. Not only because we'll spend the whole rest of our lives trying to prove to other people how smart we are, how wonderful we are, and then falling down on our face sometimes and not being able to prove that at all. But because in the end, you'll ultimately bump up against the fact that we all grow old and we lose those things. And if you spent your whole life choosing yourself and your abilities over God and choosing to cling to your own story rather than His, then ultimately God will let you have your own way. And it will just be you. As the writer professor C.S. Lewis said, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. That everyone who's apart from God will ultimately choose it. We'll either live under God's rule or we'll be given over to the consequences of our own. That we'll either let God wear our sin and wear our story or we'll wear it ourselves. And one of those is to be much preferred over the other. So what does that take us? How should we respond to God's life in this? To what Jesus is doing in His baptism here? Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What would it mean for us to repent and believe in the gospel? Let's put it this way. If Jesus is willing to put on your life, what would it look like for you to put on His life? Let's focus in on the fact that Jesus is the person who has always existed in unbroken, perfect communion with God the Father. He's always known His delight. He's always known the Father's joy, His smile, in ways that many of us with imperfect or flawed parents have not. That at Jesus' baptism, the Father's voice comes down out of heaven and says, This is my beloved. With you I'm well pleased. And in a room this size, some of us have had great fathers, and some of us have had heartbreaking fathers. But most of us have had somewhere in between. I would dare to say that no one, no one of us, though, have had a father that has always and forever perfectly loved us, perfectly given to us, without any sense that we have to borrow His time, without a sense that His affection was always pure or unblemished, without a sense that you had to buy your way into His good graces at times. But Jesus has had that. He has known that Father. And to put Him on, to wrap your life around His life, to repent and believe in the Gospel, would be to know deep in your bones that there was a sense of wholeness. This assurance that God, 
regardless of how the circumstances are or what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking, that God is going to make your life okay because He loves you, because He's your Father. It would be to know deep down, I mean really know God's fatherly love. And some of y'all are sitting here and you may be longing for that and yet utterly terrified of it at the same time because what would it mean for your life if it were true? What would it do to your heart, that kind of tender, most intimate part of who you are, to be known that way by God the Father? It would mean that God would look at you and see the things about yourself that you hate. The things about your life that if anyone else were to see them, you aren't sure that you wouldn't die. And we would also see the things about you that are so wonderful, they're so glorious, that you're afraid to name them or to look at them because it might break your heart. And he, he would put his hand on your shoulder and he would look you in the eye and he would say, this is my beloved son. This is my daughter. I see someone against whom I have no anger. See someone against whom I have no wrath. That I sing over this person. I delight in this person. I love him. I love her. Because I love Jesus. And to refuse Christ is to refuse those words. That assurance of love. That possibility of wholeness. But to repent and to wrap your life around his life. Is that, means that assurance of wholeness. That assurance of God's love. And the Bible is ultra clear that no one can bribe their way into God's affections. That no one can earn their way into His affections by being an outstanding moral person. Nobody can resume their way into His embrace. That His love is a gift given through His Son so that we can become His children. But how does that happen? How does God give that gift? How does He give His Son so that we can become His children? Look at verse 14. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. After John was arrested. You know, I'm not uh, an English professor or anything like that, but this is foreshadowing. That John, this amazing prophet, has gone out and he's proclaimed, proclaimed a message to God's people. And Jesus comes after him as a greater prophet. He proclaims a greater message. And John, this amazing prophet, is arrested and later on in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is arrested. And John is going to be executed. And later on in, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to be executed. The Mark root here is trying to prepare us for what's going to happen to Jesus. I don't know how this strikes you, but every now and again when I'm flipping through the channels, I'll stumble on one of those ESPN poker games where everybody's wearing those super dark sunglasses and like funny hats. And, but they're really trying to psych out all these other players um, and they're super serious. And the way that you know they're really serious is when they put money on the table because they're playing poker there. And when they put money, and they put a lot of money, it's called putting skin in the game. And when they put a lot of money on the table, you know they're really serious. And a lot of times, I think it can seem as though God might be distant, as though He's absent or He's somewhere far off while you're suffering through life. That you may feel as though you've come to Village Chapel and you keep wagering and wagering. But no matter how things turn out, you keep on losing. And you expected retirement to be fun, but it's actually really lonely or hard. Or you expected work to be a place where you would like pour yourself in to this thing or to this job or this task. And you'd be fulfilled 
but at the end of the day, you're just worn out. You keep doing and doing and doing, and you ask yourself, where is God in this? But the incarnation in Jesus' baptism is God putting skin in the game. That God was always serious about you. God has always been serious about His people. And Jesus' baptism and His temptation is Him letting us know that He's willing to raise the stakes to dizzying heights. Because when He puts His skin in the game, He puts it all in. And He leaves nothing out. And you feel alone and misunderstood sometimes. If you read Mark's Gospel, you will see a guy, Jesus, who is never understood by His disciples. Or never understood by His family. He is marching through Mark's Gospel almost single-handedly. And you have something about yourself that nobody knows, which you feel like is eating you up inside. Well, Jesus will bear your secrets with you. You have pain, you have shame, you have fear. He's experienced those same things as He went to the cross, as He wept, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is that so that God the Father could look at you and say, You are my beloved. With you I'm well pleased. That Jesus put His skin in the game for you, and He wasn't gambling. He was paying off the debt of your sin so that God could be both just and merciful to us. So that He could call you children. So He could love you as a son or as a daughter. That's why Jesus comes. That's why He's arrested. That's why He dies on a cross. You know, I'm going to end with this. Uh, there was an evangelist, a man who started a ministry called World Harvest Missions. He was, lived in Ireland for many years. He was a man named Jack Miller. And he used to tell a story of a young woman who came to, to one of his evangelistic seminars. And she was a Christian. But he says that she was tired and she felt really beat up by the world. And at the seminar, she heard the story of the cross. But afterwards, she met with Jack and she said something like, Jack, I just don't feel like I connect with God. I just feel so distant from Him. And Jack talks to her for a few minutes. And he gets a sense, you know, there's more here than I'm going to cover right now. But we have counselors here. If you could, like, would you meet with one of our counselors on staff? And so she does, and she meets with this man. And I've, I have a counseling degree. I've been to counseling before. And I imagine there's, like, soft, mellow lighting in the room and maybe a, a whale's heartbeat playing in the background. And it's really soft. And she's telling her story to this man. And she says that when I was growing up, as a little girl, my daddy was a traveling salesman. And he would go away for long car trips to do his sales runs. And so whenever he came home, it was always a really big event for us. And part of the way that we would celebrate is my mom would wash his shirts so he could turn around the next day and head out. And I was a little girl, and my mom was washing those shirts because daddy was coming home. And I wanted to help. And so we were washing shirts and hanging them up on the line to dry. But I was too short to hang them up on the line. So I took one of those shirts and I hung them up on a rusty old wheelbarrow instead. And that shirt got ruined. It got covered in rust and dirt. And when my dad came home, he was so mad at me. He was furious. And I just don't know how I can connect with God as my father after that. And the counselor looked at her tears in his eyes and he said do you know what Jesus would have done with that shirt she said no I don't know and the man looked at her and he said he would have worn it 
that Jesus would have worn that shirt. And that's what he does for us on the cross. He wears our story, our joy. He wears our pain. He hands us his perfect life. He hands us the fact that God would look at him and say, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. So that God could look at you and say the same thing. And that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus' baptism. That's the power of his work on the cross for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you wear um, our shame. Thank you that you wear our sins. God, that when you saw us dirty and rusty and worn out, you didn't throw us away. But Lord, you came to us and you put us on. And you made us clean through your Son. And Lord, I pray that you would work that cleanness into our hearts. I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know that cleanness, God, that they would know it. Lord, that they might be sitting here not knowing what to say or what to pray. Would they pray that right now? The Lord, I don't know you. Would you help me? God, you love to answer those kinds of prayers. I pray that you'd work in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to know your son, Jesus, and to know you as our Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Could stand and read uh, from or sing from the Trinity Hymnal 460. Amazing Grace.